0: Hello there, it's Jamila Jamil. Are you by any chance listening to this podcast promo while out on a walk? If so, good for you. That's going to make both your mind and your body feel better. On my podcast, I Weigh, this month, we're going to be exploring mental health and talking to amazing guests about other things that you can do to make yourself feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts.
1: DALIA! y'all!
2: This is Tony, Reisa, Oscar, y Carlos, and we are Spanish, Spanish Aqui presents. presents. We have a brand new podcast here on Earwolf. And we'll be bringing you the best of the best.
1: Of lo mejor of Latinx comedy.
2: Join us for new episodes every Tuesday. Cada
1: martes. Martes.
2: Spanish Aqui Presents is out now. Listen in Stitcher. Apple Podcast. Or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Donde sea, chico.
2: This is Dead Eyes, a podcast about one actor's quest to find out why Tom Hanks fired him from a small role in the 2001 HBO miniseries, Band of Brothers.
1: This is a story about something that happened almost 20 years ago. And as far as I know, I may be the only person involved who even remembers that it happened. Now, this isn't an important story. In fact, I'm not sure that this story could be less important. But it does involve one of the most popular and successful movie stars of all time. And me. And there's a mystery at the heart of it. A mystery I am determined to solve because I think I can. This is the mystery of my dead eyes. I should start by telling you who I am. My name is Connor Ratliff, and I'm a working actor, primarily in comedic roles. You probably have never heard of me, but there's a slight chance you may have seen me in a film or TV show at some point over the past few years. You might have watched me in the second season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I played Chester, the... Creepy guy who says crisscross to Susie when she's in the Catskills pretending to work at a summer resort. No, I've been hanging around this resort for seven years, and this is the first time I've ever encountered a like-minded person. We are not like-minded. I know you. You know me. I don't fucking know you. Kind of linked now, aren't we? No. Crisscross. Crisscross. Go away. I was Black Cindy's attorney on the penultimate season of Orange Is the New Black. Evolving into hysterics and changing your testimony at the eleventh hour will not help Miss Jefferson's case. Listen to me. You won't help her. I also recently did a White Castle commercial dressed up in green paint like I'm a founding father on a $3 bill. Today, I stand in this $3 bill for value, for variety, for freedom. Introdu- or if you went to see an improv show at New York City's Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in the past eight years, there's a decent chance I might have been one of the performers on stage doing improvised comedy.
2: Please, welcome to the stage, Connor Ratliff.
1: If it sounds like I'm in any way tooting my own horn, I apologize. Just trying to paint a picture of who I am now, and that's the way it is for actors. You're always selling yourself. It's disgusting. I also asked my friend Zach Woods if he would try and describe me. You probably know Zach from Silicon Valley or The Office. All right, imagine you're at my, you're delivering a eulogy, and they want a description of my face because my body's been uh, burned beyond recognition. <laughs> He and I have done quite a few improv shows together over the years, and he's really eloquent at okay. describing people, in addition to being one of the kindest people I've ever met.
2: Like, you're, you're like, a librarian who still gets laid. Or, like, a librarian where, like, if someone came into the library with a gun, you would, like, put up a good fight. Or you would work at, like, a record store. Or, like, well, no, I'm not saying it's not bad. You would, like, you, yeah, you have an archivist's... There's a quality of an archivist,
1: but but with an underlying virility. (laughs) So, like, I'm not saying I'm a big deal or anything. Far from it. But but I'm doing okay for myself, you know, which is a lot for a profession that is notoriously hard to succeed in. It's a struggle month to month, but I'm making ends meet, and there's always a chance I'm about to book the gig that will allow me to stop worrying that I'm going to lose my Screen Actors Guild health insurance. But there was a time almost two decades ago, when I was fresh out of drama school. And this working actor's lifestyle seemed to be just within my reach. And then, all of a sudden, everything fell apart. I'm talking about the time I got fired by Tom Hanks. Let's get back to the year 2000. At this point, I'm living in England, having graduated from the Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts just two years earlier, and it has been a roller coaster ride, you know, feast or famine. I I booked a leading role in a great new play at the prestigious Royal Court Theatre, got my picture in The Guardian next to a glowing review that got my name wrong. I had an agent, and I auditioned for a lot of things, but I was an American actor, mainly going out for American roles, which were fewer and further between than the British ones, I could do an okay British accent, but not good enough to fool actual British people, all of whom can really tell if your dialect is even a little bit off. So when HBO decided to make the Steven Spielberg-Tom Hanks epic miniseries Band of Brothers in the United Kingdom, it was a big opportunity for me. The main roles had already been cast in America, but now they needed to cast the small roles. They were looking for local hires. It had been my experience that even a lot of really good British actors tended to sound a little bit less natural than I did, delivering very basic American dialogue. In other words, I had a slight advantage. I auditioned. At first, it was just me in the room with a casting director and maybe an assistant or two, but at every callback, there were more and more people in the room. I don't remember exactly how many times they called me back, but I believe it was more than two, fewer than six. By the time I got to my final audition, I was told that I was the main contender for the very small speaking role I was being seen for the role of Private Zelinsky. I remember my final callback vividly. The room was filled with proxies. There were Tom's people, Steven's people, and that's Hanks and Spielberg, but I'd reached the point in the process where I was hearing people refer to them by their familiar first names. And also higher-ups from HBO. These were the bigwigs, and they were looking at me, deciding whether or not to hire me. And they did. They hired me. I was offered the role, which would appear in the show's fifth episode, possibly also the 10th. And the very good news was that Tom Hanks himself would be directing episode five. So I was going to be directed by Tom Hanks, one of my favorite actors, as well as the writer director of one of the most enjoyable feature films in recent memory, That Thing You Do. I told everyone, absolutely everyone. This was the greatest thing that had ever happened to anybody. I was going to be in the TV event of the decade, produced by one of the greatest filmmakers of all time and the two-time Academy Award winner whose work I had admired since I was a small child. Now, I'm not going to pretend it was a meaty role. It wasn't. My character only had a handful of lines, and they tended to be short and to the point. But I would be on screen talking to the main character, and I really felt like this was going to be the thing that would jumpstart my acting career. People would look back later and see me in this minor role in a major show and say, that was his first on-screen performance. That's where it all started. I remember saying to someone out loud that it felt like everything was finally falling into place for me. Later on, I remember thinking I shouldn't have said it out loud. The day before I was due to film my first scene, I had booked an afternoon train ticket from Liverpool to London. That's when I got a phone call from my agent. In a panicked voice, I was delivered this news. You have to get on a train to London right away. Tom Hanks has seen your audition tape, and he's having second thoughts. He thinks you have dead eyes. Dead eyes? What did that mean?
2: You know when, like, a person is killed in a movie, and you don't know they're dead yet, but they have a sort of startled... Look, they have like a sort of startled expression. What you're doing now, which is not typical, I would say, of your face, is you look like someone who is just, you're like, why is that actor making that weird face? And then they fall to the ground and you realize they've been like, whatever, like knifed or shot or, you know, poisoned. Um, But typically,
1: it's so hard to make my face look normal when I know you're looking. I know, okay. Maybe describe my face in emotional terms what I look like. What's the feeling when you, when you think of my face? With an emphasis on the eyes.
2: I've never felt less articulate in my life. Uh, your eyes... Your eyes... We're now... Also, just to give some context to anyone who's listening, we're standing on a street corner at 1 a.m. outside the Westport Street subway stop. People are walking by and watching me say to Connor again and again, your eyes, your eyes, your eyes. It's the most romantic moment we've ever had by far. Um... Yeah, like you could play a, a murderer. You could definitely like you could play someone who kills, or you could play someone who like is a victim of a murder. The you could spectrum. you could play either side of a murder convincingly. You could be the startled not the a, startled newly dead body or the cold blooded fucking psychopath.
1: But a participant, <laughs> not a bystander.
2: No, no, I don't buy you as a bystander. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You need to get there right away to re-audition. He thinks you have dead eyes. Now,
1: I don't think that Tom Hanks ever intended for me to know that he thought I had dead eyes. No. I talked to my friend Darcy Carden. We became friends a few years ago at UCB in New York. You probably know her as Janet from The Good Place.
0: Is there a way that we can get that motherfucking agent <laughs> assistant on this podcast? I don't remember who it was. I'm well, so bad with names and right, right, right. two decades went
1: by and I don't yeah. remember who it was.
0: God, I hate that person. Truly, deeply hate that person. Although, whatever, it's probably given you a lot of gold in your life. But like, what a thing to tell an actor. It only is in recent
1: years that it occurred to me that I shouldn't have been told that.
0: Right, 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 right.
1: Because it really put me in my head. Yeah. So then I, I get to London And I meet with the casting director, Suzanne Smith, who the two of us rode in a town car from London to Hertfordshire um, Hatfield Aerodrome, which is this giant... Airfield where they filmed Saving Private Ryan. Oh wow. And so it's just huge. It's the yeah. big I've still never worked in any place that was as big as this. And it was just right. bustling, you know. So we had like a 45-minute like town car ride and she was very nice. Even that
0: is insane, Connor.
1: She was very sweet to me, but it was clearly just so uncomfortable because of she <laughs> she had cast me and now she was maybe going to have to uncast me. Right. And so we rode up there, and then I remember waiting in an office for I think it was a couple of hours.
0: <laughs> Get there right away.
1: A certain point passed where I realized I could have taken my original Totally,
0: <laughs> totally, totally. And,
1: and I don't say this to complain at all because it is – Tom Hanks at that point was in the middle of prep for directing this episode. So he has – he was out like scouting, looking right. at location things and sets and all this stuff. And so I'm, I'm sitting in this office for, like, two hours. <laughs> so everyone, like, knew. I am clearly, like, this problem. I'm, yes. like, this, like, manifestation of a, a thing that's gone wrong.
0: Yes, yes,
1: yes. And, and then finally I get to a point where I remember hearing a noise from down the hallway. And it was as if if Tom Hanks was, like, a bird or some kind of animal. It would be like, this is the cry of the—it's, like, in a nature joke. Doc- I just hear this thing that sounds like a— <laughs> and then I hear like little British laughs, laughs like these little like, <laughs> like around a titter, him. A titter, a and, titter. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, he's coming close. And yeah. then I could hear him going into a, the room next to where I was for via another door. So I didn't see him go into the room. And then I was sitting there and at a certain point they call me into the room. Kona. Kona. Ma, Kona. 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 Kona Will you come in the room. And Tom Hanks is sitting there on a couch and he looks like he's dying. Fuck, what like sick or just stressed? Just like worse than anything in the movie Philadelphia. He oh, looks like just he's just that. like, right. like, because, and I didn't know this at the time, but it was like a shock. Uh, I didn't know about Castaway. the movie Castaway, right. which is what he had just filmed.
0: So he was so skinny. So and- he had
1: just imagine him shaving that big crazy beard right, right, and hair. Right. Right, so he's just under like a short, like almost like Michael a buzz,
0: basically.
1: Yes, yeah, and he had this like gray and black stubble, and he's right. just wearing like sweatpants, but they look like they're just about to fall off of him. Like <laughs> oh, no. he's just he's gone so method for Castaway, right? That it's a shock to see Tom Hanks and think like, oh no, is Tom Hanks sick? Is the word sinewy? Yes, yes. Yeah. I, I I was stunned when I saw. Yeah, it. I'm sure. And, I'm sure. And and then he was, uh, oh hey, how you doing? And I sat down, and and there was not a lot of chit chat. Uh, but he said, uh, well, uh, let's uh, let's hear it. <laughs> and then I proceeded to do, uh, I think, a three-minute scene opposite okay. a non-actor. It was like okay. a— pro- I know it was a non-actor because they were not good at acting. It was hey. just like a producer or an assistant or somebody. Reading lines. They had all the dialogue. And every now and then I would say, yes, sir.
0: Mm-hmm. No, sir.
1: Would you like some tea or coffee, sir? And— <laughs> So there was just uh, it was just me sitting there for most of it, not doing anything. And this other person kind of not doing a good job acting. Part of me can't help but think that it made my acting look worse that I wasn't like the scene wasn't going well.
0: Right. Well, yeah, it's an impossible task.
1: And I don't know. I don't have any memory of whether I was like popping my eyes or trying to. like. (laughs) You probably were. I I bet I was. (laughs) And so I do the scene and I remember he said, uh, oh, is that it? oh, I wish there were more. (laughs) And and then he like shook my hand and I went out of the room. And then I sat there for, I think it was probably only a few minutes, but it was like a long few minutes. Yeah. And I'm sitting on this couch and Suzanne Smith, she knelt down in front of me. And I remember it was like, it was such a gentle pose. Yeah. And part of me thought like, oh, she has good news for me. She's going to tell me like, you've got it, you know, get ready to film tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. And then she said, They've decided to go another way.
0: Oh, my God.
1: And that was when I i remember I teared up, like, oh. instant. I teared up, and I remember saying, I, I've already spent some of the money.
0: Oh, Connor.
1: And she's like, no, 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 no. You, you, the contract's been signed. You'll be paid. And I remember thinking, oh, should I say... I'll do it for free. You can keep the money if you let me be in the. I remember thinking, should I say that? And <laughs> I didn't. It. I didn't say it because I knew, I knew that if I said it, the answer would still be no, and I would have lost even more. Uh, I'd be, I would have I would have lowered myself for nothing.
0: You don't want to like make them fire you again.
1: Yeah. or I just it was one of those things where like when you know it's a second no, there's yeah. no need
0: to humiliate
1: yourself totally. further. Um, now here's the thing I, I want to ask you is, uh, have you ever been fired as an actor from a job?
0: When I, okay, this is, this is not the same thing, <clears throat> but when I was in junior high, I was a part of a children's theater company that was really, really, really my life. Like my, my, you know, my social circle, my best friends, it was like. You know, like children. Yeah, that's the word. Yeah, like I was doing plays on the weekends that you'd like have to come pay and see at like a cool theater. Yeah, but you know, us we're we're like not class clowns, but we like to be funny and we like to like get attention. And it's maybe good, it's maybe bad, but what it did was make the director of this play hate me, and he like basically fired me. He had a one-on-one conversation with you or was it It with parents? It was with parents. Like I got into my mom's car after school one day and I knew things were going bad. We didn't like each other. He was a piece of shit and he's dead now. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's a happy ending to this story. Teachers either, I was either their favorite or their least favorite, always. I was either like their little prize student or they like wanted me out of their class. It just depended on, you know, how, how I, if I rubbed them the right way or the wrong way. Yeah. And yeah, so this guy didn't like me. He thought I was a distraction. I probably was. I, I think I like, you know, did some sort of thing on stage during like a little Adner <laughs> that like, you know, pulled focus or something. And that was like a good excuse for him to get rid of me.
1: Oh man, he, was gunning, really, for, he was gunning for you. He was
0: gunning for me. Thank you, Connor. He was gunning for me. Um, But it, it really like shook up my life. And it was a big like, uh, cause I wanted to be an actor as a career. So that early being told, no- yeah. it really affected me and 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 kind of like fucked with me. So anyway, when you say fired, that is the very first thing I think of. And I don't think I've been fired from an acting job as an adult, but the night is young.
1: I don't I don't see you getting fired at this point unless like that guy's like son or grandson gets some power. Yeah. You know that teacher, if that guy, do you know did that guy have children?
0: Oh yeah. And are and they, they still, in the industry? Oh, they're in the theater industry for yeah. sure. Then but this is I, not over. This is no, far this is not over. over. No, and and I mean, I'm I'm talking freely about this, but people that I know and love, I'm the one. I'm the only one who didn't like this guy. He, he was like really um, idolized, and and people there's like when he died, a lot of there was a lot of Facebook stuff going around, like we need to honor his legacy, and I was like, mm. get me out of this Facebook group because I don't like him. <laughs> See, that's can you talk th- about dead people like that? Of course, uh, okay.
1: yeah, of course you can, because they can either it, hear man. you or it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know,
0: this what, this particular thing that you went through is not common. It's such a like it's so one in a million. Like this has never existed before. It is not like oh yeah, I have a firing story. That's no, there's nothing like this. And weirdly, I have told this whole story to many people. <laughs> like my whole family knows this story. Even if it was like a beloved town. Per, like a, like you know the sweet like mayor of your town fired you or something like that. This is different. This is like this is the world's favorite person. <laughs> yes,
1: and and I'm part of that world. <gasps> yeah, yeah, totally. And I remember thinking I must have been so bad, oh god, so bad that not even like the nicest person in show business could bear to like have me be part of this thing.
0: Now this is actually the part that like upsets me the most out of this whole story is not the like, yes, sir, would you like some coffee, sir, guy? What would that acting job have gotten you? Mm-hmm. It's what did the confidence blow do to you? Does that make sense? Yeah. It's not like I'm more concerned with like how it affected you and your like confidence or or whatever whatever it is. How did that affect you going forward as opposed to like what this IMDb credit would have gotten you? How, what was that moment in time where you like, uh, my life is over, like, like my career is over?
1: I definitely knew that I was on a break. I definitely mm-hmm. knew that I'm like, I'm not, I maybe will, I need a couple of years away from this because I really, I think it was, I really just wasn't strong enough to deal with, you know, that's just part of the industry is that you sometimes things don't work out.
0: Yeah, but this was an exceptionally, like, this was like a joke version of that <laughs> because it was. America's sweetheart or like the world's sweetheart. The world's like favorite man who's, you know, not just a good actor, but he's like Mr. Nice Hollywood or whatever. And I couldn't,
1: you know, there was a point where, you know, my parents were, uh, my mom in particular was like angry and was like, I'm not going to see any Tom Hanks movies. And I was like, I'm not going to stop going to see Tom Hanks movies. I love Tom Hanks. He's the best. And I mean, even even in my interaction with him, which was one of the worst days of my life, (laughs) He was nice to me. I mean, it was a nice
0: interaction. He didn't fire you to your face. No. Right? He didn't fire you to your cold, dead eyes.
1: You know, I spent a lot of my 30s sort of rebuilding my, uh, like from my late mid 20s to late 30s, I spent a lot of time sort of rebuilding myself. And I think at the time that we met, when I was at UCB, I had zero career ambitions for working yeah. in show business. Totally. I think we even talked about that. I didn't care about, I wasn't trying to book acting work. I didn't no. want to work in TV or movies or anything. Mm-mm. I worked in a bookstore
0: and I was fine. Totally. I mean, if listeners of the pod may know this, Connor's rise at UCB was fast and furious. He, he, he kind of skipped over many of the normal steps and went from quickly being on From from being a student to really quickly being on a Harold team, which was fast, and then really quickly being on a weekend team, which was like unheard of. So he he was a little bit of like, who the hell is this guy? But we liked you right away, and because I remember like no, I remember being like, this guy is so fucking talented. And I remember talking about this type of thing, movies or or auditioning or whatever. And you were and you were like, I really don't, I don't have any desire to do that.
1: Yeah, before I could return into show business. I had to get myself to a place where it mattered less Mm -hmm. and where I didn't, I didn't have to need it so much. Right. And I couldn't sort of go back into show business until I sort of protected myself to the point where I couldn't, I I wasn't so, like, I'm not so vulnerable about stuff like now. Like when I, when I audition for stuff, there's the pros and the cons of it. Even a dream job, if I audition for it, the, there's always an upside and a downside. And I look at both.
0: That's a very healthy way to look at that stuff. So
1: it did make me stronger, but it took a long time because totally. back then it was all I wanted. Right. And now— and Your identity. Yeah. And, I mean, now I, I worry sometimes because I'd never wanna, I never want to—I always remind myself, like, I don't want to get to that point where uh, I need it so much that—in uh, because in part because I think it's naturally—it's automatically unattractive to anyone in show business. Totally. Casting directors and anyone who's hiring actors— the sight of an actor who really wants the job is like such a turnoff. And so...
0: You know what's so fucking funny, Connor? Is when I... I remember reading or hearing a story about, guess who? Tom Hanks. That he was auditioning, 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 getting nothing. And then he he started kind of feeling the way you, you know, like he kind mm-hmm. of started feeling like, do I even need this? Do I even want this? And he would go to auditions and not care. And in some, like this is, I'm sure a made up story that I heard or read, but like he walked into the audition and fell down and didn't care and, you know, charmed the uh, the the auditioners, the auditors, the auditioners and got that job. And it was some big job. Anyway, like when I think of the, the, the desperation that we bring in and how unattractive that is. I always think of this Tom, this made-up Tom Hanks story about him not caring, and that's when he started booking jobs. Oh, wow, it all comes around. It all comes to around. To the Hanks-mon.
1: One of the interesting things I only recently realized is that not only did Band of Brothers win for best you know, TV movie or miniseries, it also won for best casting of a miniseries. Interesting. And best directing, which included all the directors of all the episodes. Oh, so everyone involved in the process that I was a part of was honored at the highest level of achievement. Yep. They all won em- Emmys for their work, <laughs> so their work is not in question.
0: We got to get Hanks on this. I'm, I, I cannot. I cannot wait. I cannot wait for you guys to to bury the hatchet and become old friends.
1: What I would what I would like to do ideally is to get a chance to re audition for him,
0: uh-huh.
1: or even just have him look at my reel. Maybe that'd be yes. the, that would be less nerve wracking for me if I yeah. could just show him my <laughs> reel and be like, "Look, this is." This is do you, you think ha- these are dead
0: eyes? A handful of shows, you know. Yeah. Um, no, you have to audition for him. But I, a reel is great. But he, you've got to audition for him.
1: I know. I have to man up and actually <laughs> sit in the room once, because I feel like I have to go through a process. I have yeah. to. Uh, do my research, see if I can yeah. find the original audition tape. I, if I see the audition tape and I have dead eyes, it changes the uh, changes my, my goal for meeting Tom yeah. Hanks. Because then I almost feel like I need to like apologize or something. <laughs> and oh and God. hopefully, uh, my goal is for this to end with a new friendship and maybe a new professional collaboration.
0: I I'm not blo- I'm not kidding. I can see it. I can truly picture it because I think he would love you, and of course, you're you're without a doubt talented. So, like this, the idea of you guys being in a scene together, I can see it. I can see it. You know, you're like, you're working at like a local newspaper. Be so good. (laughs) Yeah, you're old friends. Okay, thanks for having me on this. I can't wait to listen to it. Thank
1: you for doing it, Darcy.
0: This is gonna end well. I really feel it. I really, really feel it. I truly do.
1: I decided to begin my investigation by going back in time even further, to the year 1992. I was about to begin my senior year of high school when I was cast in the lead role in a production of Ordinary People. This was part of the University of Missouri-Columbia's professional summer rep, so this was basically the first time I had ever had a job as a professional actor, unless you count a couple of local TV commercials I did as a young child. The role in Ordinary People was an especially intense part. If you've ever seen the Academy Award-winning movie version directed by Robert Redford, I was playing the Timothy Hutton part a young man whose older brother died in a boating accident and who tried unsuccessfully to kill himself. A lot of the play is about my character talking to a therapist, played in the movie by Judd Hirsch. You're here and you're alive. And don't tell me you don't feel that. It doesn't feel good. It is good. Believe me. During that summer, the role of the therapist was played by a middle-aged actor, the correct age for the part, and it was exhilarating for me to act opposite a professional actor who really knew what he was doing. It made it feel like acting was easy. I don't even remember working to memorize my lines because the intensive rehearsal process made it feel so natural for me to know what to say and when and why. The play was well-received, so much so that in September, MU decided that the opening production of the regular school year should be Ordinary People, held over from the summer to start out the academic season strong. The entire cast was available to do a two-weekend run of the show, with the exception of the actor playing my therapist. Enter a young actor, a senior at MU, to take over the role.
2: My name is John Hamm, and I played
1: Dr. Tyrone C. Berger in the 1992 production at the Rheinsberger Theater. At the University of Missouri, Columbia, of Ordinary People. Dr. Tyrone C. Berger. Which sounds like too funny, too funny a name for... <laughs> for the
2: seriousness of the thing.
1: In the next episode of Dead Eyes, you'll hear me talk to John Hamm about his own struggles in show business. Les Moonvis at CBS had told my agents to stop sending me in because, and I quote, John Hamm will never be a television star. Wow. What did you feel like when you heard that? Uh, Not great. See? Nobody has it easy. Not even John Hamm. Look, I know. I am looking for answers to some very stupid questions. This isn't a vendetta. I, I don't want this to be the story of some bitter actor holding a grudge. I see this podcast as an opportunity to have some honest conversations with a handful of people who were also directly or indirectly a part of this crazy thing that happened to me once. This meant nothing to anyone other than you. Nothing at all. Not a, single, not a single person involved in this story thought about it again for the rest of their lives. <laughs> Everyone has a dead eyes story. And most of them don't actually involve dead eyes, but everybody has a weird, disappointing thing happen to them at some point in their lives. So while I'm investigating the specifics of my own past, I'm going to stumble across other people's stories. Things that blew up their lives threw them for a loop, baffling failures that either destroyed them completely or forced them to rebuild from the ground up. if you if you had to describe me as someone who hadn't who did, had, didn't know me,
2: there's times, actually, I will uh, eliminate that from a, a breakdown description when sending it to a client, whether it's like ugly man or you know unsightly woman or
1: creepy dude and maybe, just maybe, This could all lead to me getting a chance to audition again for Tom Hanks. But we'll worry about that later. This isn't about a destination. It's about a journey. The journey to solve the mystery of my dead eyes. I hope you like this podcast. This is obviously a very personal passion project for me, but if you'd like to hear more, if you'd like me to go further in this investigation, maybe get a chance to audition for Tom Hanks, talk to some of the people involved, please share this podcast with your friends, talk about it online, tweet about it, talk about it on the message boards, let people know that you like it, share it with people who you think would also like it. Uh, Spread the word. I really appreciate it.